0: I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. This morning we're going to consider something about our future as Christians and why it is so important for us to not lose sight of our future as believers, mainly because what we focus on in our Christian lives has such a dramatic effect on the way that we live in the present. Now, before we jump into chapter 5, let me begin by just setting the stage or providing a, a brief sketch of what was going on at the time when Paul penned this particular letter to the Corinthians. Paul had been a follower of Christ for 20 or so years, and as a Christian, as a Apostle, as a missionary, as a church planter, he had been through quite a lot. A lot of things externally, difficult circumstances, bodily harm, a lot of things internally, his own, of course, struggle with sin, dealing with the challenges of gospel ministry, personal disappointment. Simply put, Paul was a broken servant. For starters, he was a broken servant in a physical sense, unbelieving Jews and Gentiles seeking to take his life on a number of occasions, sometimes facing death on a daily basis. We read in this very letter, chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, He on whom we have set our hope, and He will yet deliver us. Over in chapter 4, verse 8, he continues, he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. In chapter 11, verse 23, comparing himself to those false teachers in the church, he says, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. i more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews thirty-nine lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. But Paul wasn't just a broken servant of Christ in a physical sense. Paul also suffered what we might call a broken heart. He had poured his life out for these people. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15, he says, I will most gladly spend... And be expended for your souls. Paul had a profound love for the Corinthian congregation. He had spent 18 months with them, living among them, evangelizing, teaching, praying for them, grounding them in the truths of the gospel of grace. He had witnessed marvelous conversions in the lives of so many who had previously lived as fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, drunkards, and so forth. People were saved. People were growing. And the church at Corinth was established. But after that initial year and a half stay, Paul moved on to Ephesus, where he continued to serve as their Father in the faith from afar. Unfortunately, as time passed, a murmuring spirit grew up in the church. The Corinthians began to judge others unrighteously. Divisions and power struggles emerged. Sin was being tolerated. Problems escalated. It wasn't long before a a party, a, a group of people, arose from within the church who at first subtly, but in time, blatantly opposed Paul and then sought to undermine the place that he had occupied in the hearts of these Corinthian Christians. But rather than deal with this very serious threat, the church not only allowed these false teachers to come into their assembly and attack Paul's character and his ministry, but many of them swallowed the insinuations and the criticisms of these individuals. In fact, some in the church actually joined in a mutiny against Paul. One individual apparently verbally assaulted Paul during his sorrowful return visit to Corinth, and the majority of the church did not stand with Paul and defend him from those attacks. So, How did Paul face these realities in his life? Did he shrink back from his God-given responsibilities? Did he quit preaching? Did he quit serving? Did he pull back? Did he give up hope? Did he pick up his ball and go home? No. Actually, the thing I have noticed throughout this particular epistle, epistle to the Corinthians is that Paul faced these challenges with incredible confidence. Over in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Verse 3, Giving no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance... "...in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report... "...regarded as deceivers, yet true, as unknown, yet well-known, as dying, yet behold, we live, as punished, yet not put to death, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things." He says, "...our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians, our heart is opened wide." You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Down in chapter 7, verse 4, he says this, Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all of our affliction." It's absolutely mind-boggling to me. How did he do it? How was Paul able to respond in this way, in the face of so much disappointment, so much heartbreak, so much physical suffering? Well, it's obvious that this was a demonstration of God's power. Without question, it was the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel, But it is equally obvious that there were certain realities that anchored Paul and gave him great courage. There were particular truths, specific expectations that Paul held on to, which gave him the strength to keep moving, to keep pursuing the right things, to keep pressing on in the ministry. For instance, back in chapter 1, verses 3 to 7, Paul says that one of the reasons why he and his fellow workmen could endure such affliction and suffering was his understanding that not only would God comfort him and comfort them, but that they would in turn be able to comfort the Corinthians during similar times of testing in the future. And what about the effect of Paul's preaching? How did he continue to preach when so many rejected the gospel in unbelief? Because he understood that the proclamation of the truth sometimes has that effect. Chapter 2, verse 14, he says, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life, and who is adequate for these things. Again, notice Paul's courage. Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, we do not lose heart. Why? Because he goes on in the following verses to say, because we, li- we lived a blameless life. We renounced secret and shameful ways. We refused to use deception or to falsify God's word. Our job is to simply set forth the truth truth plainly and then to rest in the power of God. To rest in the Lord that He is the one that will open eyes and quicken the dead hearts of those who listen. But how did Paul go on day to day as in chapter 4 verse 10 when he says, Carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. Because he knew that his experiences would rebound to God's glory. Verse 7. Of chapter 4, and the salvation of many, he says in verse 12, So death works in us, but life in you. But how could Paul be so content when he was so weak in his flesh and was the target of such cruel treatment and insults? Chapter 12, verse 9, he says, And he, the Lord, has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Does any of this seem foreign to you? Uh, Does any of this seem foreign to your Christian experience? Not the affliction or the heartbreak. Because I know when I'm reading those passages about heartbreak and affliction, you're all sitting there saying, yeah, I get that. Yeah, I'm going through that. Yes, I understand that. But I'm talking about the trusting in Christ. Is that foreign to you? That part. The, The trusting in Christ, the... The gratitude in the midst of the affliction, the rejoicing, the endurance. I don't know about you, but in my own life, I know that I sometimes fail miserably to have or to maintain this attitude. This perspective that Paul so vividly and so steadily models for us. It's so easy to get discouraged, isn't it? It is so easy for us to lose perspective and to lose heart. To not face our experiences and trials with confidence in the truth and the power of God. How can you combat this temptation in your life? How can you face trials with this kind of God-dependent confidence? How can you triumph through your trials and not lose heart? In the midst of trouble, or for that matter, in the course of everyday life, are there truths that can help you to stay in the middle of the narrow path, to make wise decisions, to stay focused on the right things, and to not grow weary along the journey? what I want to do this morning is to zero in on two truths that will help you to minister to others and to serve God with resiliency and steadfastness. Two principles that will help you to combat discouragement in your walk with Christ. Now, I want to ask you to just follow along as I read our text for today. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I think your bulletins say 2 Corinthians chapter 6. That We'll get to that passage sometime down the road. But if you'll follow along as I read our text for today, 2 Corinthians 5, we'll be focusing primarily on verses 9 and 10, but let's begin in verse 1. And notice as we move down through these verses, Paul's consistent focus on the futures, which really begin back in chapter 4, verse 13. Paul continues here in chapter 5, verse 1, with, with a confident assertion of the future resurrection of the body and a confident longing for that transformation. Verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent which is our house is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed while we are in this Tent, this scarred, this, this weathered, disintegrating body, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge, as an initial down payment of the eternal. Verse 6 Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. This was Paul's abiding preference. This is Paul's deep preference desire, not to simply know the Lord, but to experience the depth of fellowship that is totally active, that is totally reciprocal with live face-to-face exchange. Don't miss this. Paul's preference was not a prolonged life on earth. It was to be with Christ. Now, Notice what this future hope does for Paul. Notice what this hope of imminent person-to-person communion with Jesus naturally evokes in Paul's life. Verse 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. How do you triumph through your trials? How do you remain steadfast and faithful? How do you combat discouragement? You resolve, by God's grace, to do two things. It's the first Sunday of January. We'll call them two resolutions. The first is found in verse 9. The first resolution you must make on the front end and in the midst of the struggle is this. You must aim to please God with your hours. You must aim to please God with your hours. Paul says, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Christ. The King James says this, we labor The NIV says, we make it our goal. The ESV says, we make it our aim. Now, in Romans chapter 15, verse 20, Paul mentioned another ambition or aim of his life, to preach the gospel where Christ was not named so as to not build on another man's foundation. But here he says, our ambition, my ambition, is to please my Lord, my Master, Jesus Christ. Now, what do we mean by ambition? Well, ambition is a goal. And it's a goal or a target that determines a person's direction in life. And Paul says that the noblest and the highest ambition to which anyone can aspire is to be pleasing to God. Now, few passages bring Paul's ambition more clearly into focus than 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In verse 3, he said this to the Corinthians... In that letter, but to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. "...who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God." Paul was basically saying that even though the Corinthian church would waver in their judgment of Paul, their opinion of him was not something that controlled Paul's direction in ministry that he viewed himself first and foremost as a steward of God and therefore accountable to Him. It's not that Paul had a, some sort of defiant or self-righteous attitude that refused to submit to any sort of scrutiny or judgment. In fact, Paul stated repeatedly in both First and 2 Corinthians his desire to be an open book, to live publicly before the church. And Paul certainly wasn't arguing that believers should not confront other believers who continue to live in sin, because he also addressed this problem in his letters to this church. Paul was simply stating that the Corinthians were not able to judge him properly, and that final judgment was reserved for a higher court. Now, what are the other alternatives to pleasing God? Well, we certainly could and often do aim to please ourselves. Of course, Romans 15 forbids us to have that kind of focus. In fact, Paul goes on even in this chapter in 2 Corinthians 5 to say this in verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now, another alternative to pleasing God would be what? Aiming to please other people, right? I mean, doesn't this seem to be our natural tendency to please others? Now we're not talking about that, that godly trait that Paul commends in Romans chapter 15, verse 2, when he says, Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good and to his edification. And we're not referring to that mindset or that attitude that Paul encourages in Philippians 2, 3 when he writes. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. We're not talking about that. We're talking about that sinful desire of our hearts that looks only to the interests of others with no consideration for God and what He wants. That choice that we make to elevate the opinion and the approval of men over the approval of Christ. That decision that we often make to not offend or to upset other people in our lives while caring nothing about how what we are doing offends our Savior. Paul says, we don't do that. We haven't done that. We won't do that. We are concerned primarily about what pleases Jesus. Paul had this to say to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, "...for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition." For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, for God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority, but we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Paul says, yes, we are to love people, but we should never make it our goal to please people. And think about it for a minute. It's really a futile pursuit to please people anyway, right? I mean, we can't possibly please everybody in our lives. Think about all the people in your life you would have to please. Your spouse, your parents, your children, your extended family, your in-laws, your boss, your co-workers, your neighbors, your pastors, and all your Christian friends, and so on. And when you have pleased some how many will still be unpleased or displeased? The reality is, you will never know all of those who observe your life and desire to be pleased by you. And people's expectations will often be higher than you are able to satisfy. You recall what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11. He says, But but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Listen, you will be frustrated out of your mind if if your aim in life is to please other people. Remember this, not the apostles, not even Jesus himself could please the world or escape their slanders and their cruelties. And remember, whenever you set aside the goal of pleasing God and you get focused on what other people think, you are headed for a fall. Proverbs 29 verse 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. That is certainly a warning for those who seek to please men. Now, why do I say that you should aim to please God with your hours? Because I believe we need to be much more conscious about the way that we live live our lives before God. I have found that Christians sometimes make a couple of mistakes in this area. One mistake is that they say that they want to please God, but it's just some sort of far-off general goal that they think is going to somehow happen automatically. They start their week with a desire to please God. But next thing you know, it's Friday. Here comes the weekend, back to church on Sunday, I didn't fall into any major sin, I didn't deny Christ, so I must have lived a life that was pleasing to God this week. Probably not. That is why I think it is helpful for you to think about your week in terms of hours. It's Tuesday, 8 o'clock in the morning. Has your day gotten off to the right start with a focus on God? It's Tuesday, 9 a.m. Are you pleasing Christ in your attitude? It's Tuesday at noon. How did you respond to that cutting remark from that classmate? It's Tuesday at 2 o'clock. Are you still loving your neighbor? It's Tuesday at 5 o'clock. Have you done your work as unto the Lord? It's Tuesday at 7 o'clock. Are you treating your family as if they are your servants or are you serving them? It's Tuesday at 830. How is that television show you're watching affecting your heart and mind? It's Tuesday at 10 o'clock. Have you thanked God for his protection and grace? You see, I don't think most Christians go through their week this way. Their goal is good. They want to please God, but their goal is too general. They need to think about pleasing God every day throughout their day. And this brings up another common mistake. Many believers do not know how to please God in specific situations they face in the flow of daily life. This is the consequence of them simply not knowing what the Word of God teaches Again, they say that they desire to glorify God, but when a specific challenge or a specific trial or temptation or form of suffering arises, they do not consider what the Scriptures have to say about that particular issue. So, Paul says, if you want to remain steadfast, and if you want to overcome discouragement, you must make this resolution. You must aim to please God not yourself, and not other people, but to please Christ, and to please Him with your hours, to dedicate every part of your life to to the glory of Christ in every situation and in every part of every day. It's like that hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be Consecrated. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of Thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for Thee. Take my voice, let me sing always only for my King. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from Thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. That is walking by faith. That is aiming to please God, and we should do it every hour of the day. So the first resolution you must make, especially on the front end and in the midst of a trial, is this. You must aim to please God with your hours. The second resolution you must make is found in verse 10 of chapter 5, and it's this. You must anticipate the coming judgment. You must anticipate the coming judgment. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Notice Paul's confidence here. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the word translated judgment seat in this verse comes from the Greek word bema, You may have heard someone refer to the judgment seat or the Bema seat of Christ. Well, exactly what is that? Exactly what does this term mean? Well, in its simplest definition, it describes a place reached by steps, or we might say a platform. In Greek culture, the Bema was the elevated platform on which victorious athletes received their awards. It was also the place where someone might have to appear to have his or her deeds examined in a judicial sense, to be indicted or to be acquitted. Writing to the Romans, Paul described this same event in chapter 14, verse 10, when he says, But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you, again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God." Now, there are several things to note about this judgment. Let me mention five of them. The first is this. This judgment will be in the future. This judgment will be in the future. Now, there are differing opinions about this. I personally believe that this judgment will take place after the rapture of the church, but before Christ returns to earth to establish the millennial kingdom. One thing is clear. It is future. Paul says we will stand one day in the future, at the Bema. Number two, this judgment will include all of those who make up the church. Certainly, this was a driving motivation in Paul's life. But this judgment was not just for the apostles or for their close associates. It included all of those Corinthians or all those Christians at Corinth. It included all of those Christians at Rome. And it includes all of you who are part of the body of Christ. Every child of God will give full account of what he has done in the body, the tent of this life. And every Christian will be examined, not to determine their eternal destiny, but for the purpose of evaluating their works. And notice the phrase, so that each one may be recompensed. In other words, this is not a judgment of believers as a group or as a community but an evaluation and examination of each and every follower of Christ. Number three, this judgment will be performed by Christ. He says we must appear before the Bema of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. The word here before literally means in front of. Now Paul on several occasions stood before the Bema of men. Of political leaders and, and government officials. In Acts chapter 12, verse 21, Paul stood before Herod. In Acts chapter 25, verse 6, Paul stood before Festus. In fact, Corinth had a Bema, where Paul in Acts chapter eighteen sixteen 16, stood before Galeo, the pro council of that region. But here's the thing Paul's greatest concern was not his appearance before these men of influence and power. Paul's greatest concern was his future appearance before God. I don't know how many of you have ever had to appear in court, but it is a sobering experience for sure. You're concerned about your appearance, you're concerned about what questions you might be asked, you're thinking about what you're going to say or what you're not going to say. There's not a lot of joking and carrying on in the courtroom. It's serious business. Now, think about what that will be like to stand before Christ and to hear his perfect assessment of the way that we have conducted ourselves as his servants. Talk about a sobering experience. Number four this judgment will expose our motivations. This judgment will expose our motivations. He says, we must all appear. And the word appear in this verse, in verse 10, is the same word used in verse 11 and translated in the New American Standard as made manifest. It means to make visible or to make clear or plain. Philip Hughes explains that for someone to experience this examination before Christ is for them to, quote, be laid bare, stripped of every outward facade of respectability and openly revealed in the full and true reality of one's character. In other words, Jesus will not only expose our deeds, but the heart motivation behind every act and every word. Number five, this judgment will result in loss and reward. Paul uses the word recompensed here, which means to receive back what is due. Now, what the loss and reward will be are not extensively spelled out in Scripture, but the concept of loss and reward is plain. It's here in this verse and it's in others such as Colossians chapter 3.24 where Paul writes, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he's done and that without partiality. You see, in verse 9, we learn that the Apostle Paul had a noble ambition to please the Lord. But what we learn in verse 10 is that driving this ambition was Paul's knowledge that there would be a penetrating unveiling of the depths of his heart by the Lord himself. And verse 10 also gives us a clue about how we are to please the Lord. The word for bad at the end of this verse is is not a term that usually speaks of things which are morally evil. Or rather, it's a term which means worthless or useless. In other words, Paul is not necessarily talking about a judgment on sin. Rather, he is speaking of those mundane things in our lives that are inherently neither godly nor sinful. This would include such things as going jogging in your neighborhood this afternoon, taking piano lessons, going shopping for a new shirt, going back to school to get your master's degree. These and other morally neutral things will be judged when believers stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And one of the main considerations on that day, I believe, will be the issue of motives. If those things in your life were done to glorify God, they will be considered good. But if they were pursued for selfish interest, they will be counted as bad or worthless. Believers will only be rewarded for deeds done with motives that please and glorify the Lord. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he's built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. I believe Paul is saying that one of the primary ways that we please the Lord is by doing our daily work for His glory. Whether you are a housewife, a student, an elder, a businessman... You should fulfill your responsibilities each and every day in a way that glorifies God. Some of you have a boss or a supervisor over you who is demanding, pointing out your every failure, even imagined ones. He never praises you for a job well done. And to think that Tuesday at this time you will be back in the office or working in the warehouse fills you with anxiety and apprehension. But know this, it is possible for you to please the Lord in that place. It is possible for you to know His blessing. Some of you are returning back to school this week. Listen, you can make a difference in the lives of your classmates, you can live with the goal of pleasing and honoring Christ. Some of you are struggling in your faith. Some of you have grown weary. Some of you are concerned about your children or concerned about your parents or concerned about your finances. Paul says, lift up your head. Remember the promises of God. Our God is a God of comfort. Christ is our righteousness. The Holy Spirit has been given to us as a pledge. One day we will receive our resurrection bodies. In the meantime, our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Therefore, let us resolve, let us anticipate the coming judgment, and in light of this future accounting, let us aim to please the Lord with our hours whether we are studying or playing or fixing a leaky toilet or ironing clothes or worshiping with our church family. Let us do all that we do for His sake, for His pleasure, for His glory. Some of you may be familiar with Dr. H.A. Ironside, a renowned Bible teacher and pastor at the Moody Church back in the 30s and 40s, converted at the age of 13 When he was a boy in Los Angeles at 14 years of age, Harry got a job as a helper to a shoemaker, a cobbler. His boss was a believer, a wonderful, godly man whose name was Dan. And it was young Harry Ironside's task to take leather which had been soaked all night in a tub of water to toughen it and then take it on an iron anvil and with a wooden mallet to beat the water out of the leather and by that process to toughen it and yet soften it so that it would be both pliable and enduring. But it was a tedious task, just endlessly beating at the leather until all the water was gone. And what made it even more difficult for Harry was that just a few doors down the street was another cobbler. It was another shop run by a very godless man, a blasphemous man, a profane man. And one day, Harry Ironside, walking by, noticed that this man didn't bother to beat the water out of the leather. In fact, this man would pick up the leather out of the tub, cut a piece, nail it to the shoe with the water splashing in every direction. One day, Harry ventured to stop by the shop and said to him, Sir, you know that I work down the street at Dan's shop, and I noticed that you don't bother to beat the water out of your leather. Why is that? The man gave him a... Sort of an evil wink and said to him, ah, they come back all the quicker this way. So Harry Ironside went back to his shop and he said to his employer, sir, why do we do this? It's such a hard job to beat all this water out. It takes so long. And the man down the street says that if you just take it out, you can put it on the shoe and the customers will all come back quicker this way, obviously for repairs or new shoes. Well, the old man looked at him, didn't say a word, took off his apron, took him by the hand, took him over to a bench and sat him down and said, Harry, I apologize to you for not having told you more fully what is involved. But you know, son, I expect to see every pair of shoes I've ever made in a big pile at the judgment seat of Christ. And I expect the Lord to take those shoes and to go through every one and examine the work I did. And then I expect, I imagine oftentimes he'll take one and he'll look at me and say, Dan, that's not up to par. You didn't do a very good job there. But others, he'll encourage me by saying, Dan, that was a splendid job. You know, when I make shoes, I keep remembering that. And I want to make shoes that every shoe I make will pass the judgment of the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. Harry Ironside said, I've never forgotten that, and I resolved in my own heart that every sermon I preach will be able to pass the judgment of my Lord. Now, I think that's what the Apostle Paul was talking about. That's the accountability of a Christian. As servants of Christ and children of God, obedient to what the Master says, we do our work in view of the judgment seat of Christ. Will your life this week pass the judgment of your your Lord? And are you willing to stop and at different times of the day this week to consider if you have been pleasing to Christ and to look to God's Spirit for strength to honor Him in the coming hour. May God give us this consuming ambition and the grace and the wisdom to anticipate the day that we will answer to Jesus. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we thank you for the great privilege we've had this morning to come together as your people and to worship you, to praise you. Lord, we thank you for the the word of God this morning. And, Father, we do pray that as we leave and go to those stations of life that you have called us to serve this week, that, Lord, we would make it our goal, our aim to be pleasing to you above all else. And that, Lord, that we would keep in our minds constantly the reality, the promise that one day we will stand in your presence. Lord, that we would understand you are very concerned about the way that we live as believers. So, Lord, would you help us to live with that mindset, help us to keep eternity in view this week. And, Father, for any of those who might be here this morning that are not Christians Lord, who also have an appointment with God, but it will not be for him to evaluate their works that they've done as your children, but Lord, they stand under your wrath. Lord, they will be judged righteously for their sin and for their unbelief. Father, I pray for any here this morning that might not be saved, that Lord, they would turn from their life of sin and that they would run to Jesus as their refuge and in him find forgiveness of sins.